know when you want me to start. I never remember how we did the intro. And now, welcome. Live. This Monday <laughs> afternoon, live from Swannanoa. The traffic is backed up all the way to Asheville. Hope you're enjoying your summer Monday back to work, everybody. <laughs> the top movie in America is whatever that Jada Pinkett movie is. These are actual intro desk. It yeah. is? You would know if you'd ever heard the podcast. I have heard it. It didn't sound like that. Oh, this is the one I cut off every week. Well, oh. And also, you, it comes in, uh, it sounds different on... Uh, <laughs> yeah, SoundCloud edits that out. Well, you might not know they're bankrupt. Welcome to this week's episode of Attica Shrug, the podcast about Southern culture, politics, and things going on this week. With me, as always, are Chad Watson. Hello. And David Dykes. Hello. And Hello. I'm Wes Hello. Cheek, and we're all in the same room. And today we have a special guest, our friend Jessica, who is a physician um, and at an establishment that's not going to be identified because it's in a bunker underground, and they work on mafia people who've been injured in drug shootouts. She's the night nurse from Daredevil. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we uh, we have we've been podcasting sporadically over the last month because we have all been in rural Appalachia. That's true. <laughs> There's no technology out taking here. Taking it back to the roots. Yeah, taking it back. Not my roots. Yeah. Your roots. My roots. Mm. I was in a place. I was. I've been in a. Spent a lot of time in a place that has no cell phone coverage. And <laughs> me too. Little little internet. Oh, strangely for me, I have uh, complete Wi-Fi and no cell phone coverage. The modern world. So uh, since we're in, well, from this last week, since we're in Appalachia and we talk a lot about Appalachia, do you have any good stories about Appalachia from this week or last few weeks? I was sitting around listening to um, a bunch of kids and. Um, um, an adult, all from Appalachia, and they were singing kind of folk songs, but uh, I think mostly from the uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, and just it just scraped me a little bit wrong that um, uh, wh- you know when we talk about cultural appropriation and the um, uh, um, whole idea of. Like who has access to what and can kind of own it as their own, and a bunch of kids sitting around singing songs is not a big deal by any means. Nobody's monetizing it or anything like that. But it does feel a little weird sometimes to listen to um, um, people who don't know actual hardship sing hardship songs. I thought you were going to go the other way with that. I thought you were going to say, why did the Coen brothers get to determine our, our, our catalog? Well, I think that... Our it, but it wasn't the Coen brothers. It was... Um, what's his name who did the soundtrack, put it together? T-Bone Burnett. Was it T-Bone Burnett? It oh. was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say Tex Turner, but I think you're right. T-Bone Burnett. Where's he from? Uh, I think he's Detroit. from Louisiana. What does he know? <laughs> I thought you were going to say Kid Rock's pool mm-hmm. house. <laughs> but we know, a lot, we know a lot of people who do... Uh, southern music or southern influence music mm. and especially roots music and Americana and stuff mm-hmm. who have a very 
a tentative relationship to the culture and sometimes even an antagonistic relationship to the culture. Well, I think one of the largest proponents of Southern traditional music that we know is a Jewish person from Philadelphia. Yep. But I've had that conversation with them, and they're like, uh, it's weird, it's not my music, but it's my music. Yeah. So music speaks to you. Like, I mean, I'm a big fan of hip-hop, and I'm from uh, rural, well, white until elementary schoolish area. Yeah. So, yeah, culture is weird. Anybody else have any good stories about Appalachia from this week? Since we're here. Since we're deep in Appalachia. We are, we're deep. We're in the belly button. I forget, I forget every time how beautiful it is up here. It's really nice. I had a moment with that, too, where I was... In a cow pasture? In a cow pasture, sitting in a cow pasture at sunset, and it completely transformed my consciousness for, like, <laughs> days and days afterwards. And you were in a good mood after the cow pasture. Yeah, it was um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of astounding to me because I... Often I think about being here, and I think about having really horrible asthma attacks, and about because of the coal mining you do when you're here, <laughs> yeah. coal mining, <laughs> trudging up and down hills, and uh, um, uh, how uh, dank it is and uh, uh, humid and all the rest. But it is beautiful, and it because I grew up in it. I think partly is why it speaks to me in a way that uh, really resonates for me. Yeah, yeah, I found out uh, the pasture. I found out whether, well, I think I have a theory of why those foxes were in that pasture. Yeah. I found out from one of the farm guys that they have a mobile chicken coop that they take around, and this last week or so it's been <laughs> up in that pasture. Oh. So I think those foxes might have been looking for the mobile chicken coop. <laughs> what a fascinating modern world we live in. <laughs> What's the benefit of a mobile chicken coop? I think you can let them out and let them scratch and uh, bug hunt and stuff, and, and then come move back it on to another mm-hmm. pasture. So pest control, uh, and, and also just organically. feeding them. Oh, okay. And they don't, uh, won't wear out one. Wear area. out the ground. Oh, okay, just be like a mud pit. I don't know anybody this. I'm a lead farmer. I uh, my great grandmother raised chickens. I was, I in a mobile coop. Chicken. Not in a mobile coop. It was very mm-hmm. stationary, very dirty and nasty. And they, well, not recently, like in the. In the past, like, 10 years, a guy built a gigantic chicken farm, like one of those, like, horrible chicken farms that you see on Tibet, where all the chickens are, like, packed in, and it's, I mean, it stank from... Did they cut all their beaks off? You could smell it for probably, I don't know what was going on, it smelled really bad in there. Well, I was asking about, so, you know, North Carolina is famous for having really muddy creeks and rivers, and I was asking some of the kids from North Carolina why, and they, they, they said it was because it was one of the most polluted pig farming states yeah. in the country, but I hope that's not why the creek is brown, because I've been swimming in the creek every day. I think the water's just up here. Yeah, like uh, There's not much upstream from here, because we're way up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. There's not really a lot of space for there to be a uh, pig farm, unless it's on the pinnacle of a mountain. But you'll build like your tolerance up to pig, to- pig toxins. Yeah. I bet it's because we had so much rain, that's why it's so muddy. But they're always muddy. There's not clear streams up here. Sometimes. Yeah, but if you go across to Tennessee, they're this clear water streams. Noah is sometimes pretty clear. Really? Yeah, it's always been kind of muddy and full of tiny little crabs when I'm in it. But I'm a snob from Florida, <laughs> so don't listen to me. Tiny little crabs. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. Our cre- our creeks are full of uh, Jimmy Buffett pollution in Florida, <laughs> and the No Shoes Army. Crawdads? We don't crawdads in Florida. Is that Jimmy Buffett poison? No, the no, tiny little crabs. Yeah, because we don't have crabs here. That's you have, there's little things. Crawdads. Oh, those are well. There's crawdads, and there's also little like 
nymphs and stuff that are, are nymphs inse- insect things? larvas? No, there's little things. Go in this creek, there's little things, little black things that are they're really gross. They're not crawdads. So they could be, uh, what do they call them, water bears? <laughs> oh, is that a thing? Is that a real yeah, thing? they're like little, uh, they look almost like roly-polies. They go around like they have little oars on the side. <laughs> I don't know if this is real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Buffett poison. <laughs> that That's what I mean from? by water bears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have two Appalachian stories. One I want to ask you guys about, I want to bounce this off you guys. Uh, one weird thing for me from coming New Orleans to here is that and I might be completely wrong about this, but whenever I'm jogging or walking, I pass people and say hello or good morning, and I very seldom get a response. What's up with that? Here? Yeah. I think that's here. That's not Appalachia so much. It happened in Knoxville, too. Oh, that's weird. Mm -hmm. Because I remember when our friend Jeremy was here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, We were up in Cumberland Gap, but I remember he's from New Orleans, and he'd go out running. And everybody'd say hello. And he said... um, Man, people are weird here. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? He said, uh, I keep jogging past all these um, uh, white ladies who are by themselves who smile and say hello. To <laughs> hey, that was the hardest thing about moving to Chicago is I'd be walking down the street and I'd say hi to everyone I passed. And I'd get glared <laughs> at, or yelled at, or <laughs> I still remember the kid. My, shut up. <laughs> my, my grandmother lived next to the launching ramp. Uh, in Destin, and now her house is a launch ramp. That's a whole other sad story. But uh, my, you know, people be coming in and out every day, and my dad would say to them like, "Hello" or "Good morning," and if they didn't answer, he would just say, "Damn Yankees." So I was. Well, I wonder if because lots of people move. Yeah, to Asheville, Asheville, lots of transplants. So Sorry, apologies to Asheville for saying that about you. I've also I was talking to Scott, our friend from New Orleans, about this yesterday. Like. Well, no, maybe it's too, like, New Orleans-specific. But I've noticed, like, um, in New Orleans, I always end up buying, like, tiger-striped sunglasses or, like, some kind of silly-looking element of clothing that if you have at New Orleans, everyone will kind of, like, uh, not chuckle, but be like, oh, yeah, you just busted that out, and it will be, like, a fun thing. And here people will say, like, why do you have those? Which I've never <laughs> <laughs> It's conservative part of the country. I know. I think I've been to New Orleans. Okay, so the other thing I want to talk about that we were in Mars Hill two weeks ago, which is a lovely place. I like Mars Hill. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Not very nice. Very nice. Beautiful little old, I need to call it downtown, uh, concentration of buildings. But um, there, there's a, like a running path. Is it at the university there? Or is it just like next to the university? Is it well, a city it's part thing? of it. It starts on the university and yeah. then it runs off into the city. And it's known as like, like all the like all the young people. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's the brain drain. They call it the brain drain mm-hmm. exercise people path. People live up on the hill. Mm-hmm. From <laughs> <laughs> but it was named after it was like the duck. The it was named after Dr. Otis. Yeah, Dr. Otis Duck. Dr. Otis Duck. And I had this little plaque explaining who he was, and I'm just going to read a few paragraphs off of it for several reasons. One of it, one of the reasons, is just that I found it charming. But uh, I'm going to read a few paragraphs. So. Um, for, no, I can't see it. <laughs> Was that you? Well. Okay. Okay. For over 40 years, Dr. W. Otis Duck ministered to the community of Mars Hill in Madison County as physician, confidant, and friend. A native of Mars Hill, he became known through the years as the last of a special breed, the country doctor. Dr. Duck was the last generation of doctors who made house calls. He made them until late... 
1984, 1994, when his final illness prevented him from treating patients. During the first 26 years of his practice, he delivered more than 3,000 babies, many of those home deliveries. He was especially proud of never having a maternal fatality. Um, let me skip over. I'm going to skip a few paragraphs. But he went on. He was in the Army in World War II, uh, in the Medical Corps, and then he came back and was instrumental in the Mars Hill University, and he was uh, worked at the hospital in Asheville. Um, and then the last paragraph says, Friend and neighbor Walter Smith said that Dr. Duck voiced his own epitaph when he said shortly before he died, uh, quote, If I could choose a legacy to leave with my community, with Madison County and the region, I want to be remembered as one who advocated for the highest quality of medical care for all of our people. Um, so I thought one thing I liked about this was just I like finding out about people like that. I would never find out about otherwise. Uh, it sounds like an interesting guy. Um, Another reason I bring it, and I think everywhere like we grew up has those people, you can think of them, and they're great. Uh, another reason I bring it up is because we talk a lot about the failures of messaging of both the Democratic Party and the left in um, America. Like, And I find this to be a real problem that I feel like this kind of rural narrative is a bit like hijacked by Republicans and right-wing forces when I feel this, what this guy's saying kind of uh, very much speaks to me as a leftist. Does that make sense? Yep. Yes. Um, feel free to elaborate on that if you know, want. Me. Well, it, I mean, yeah, and the, some of the people that we came in contact with in um, Mars Hill, maybe what we think of as small C conservative, but mm-hmm. but overall had a helpful charitable view of society. Charitable view of society. Is it charitable view of society? Yeah, and I think there's so much about people I grew up around who I see now who are kind of movement conservatives are very much part of right-wing politics, but when if you actually speak to them, they're really inherently good people who would, I think, express these same sentiments, and it's not reflected in their politics. And I worry that to a large degree that's because, like, on the left in America, we've never constructed a good, especially a good rural narrative. We have decent urban narratives about how politics works. Right. We don't really have good rural messaging and rural narrative about how this factors into beliefs. Right. How you have the, uh, still have, even Democrats are good old boys, like in small towns, like small town Democrats. Right. They're uh, not fiscally liberal, but socially conservative, or that's what. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Democrats, I mean, small town Democrats. Right. But if you talk, I think if you spoke to them in terms about how to make, like, do you like having this idea of a family doctor in a rural community? Mm -hmm. They would probably say yes. Do you like the idea of a doctor who does house calls? They would probably say yes, um, but if you ask them like how to facilitate that, I think they couldn't give anything other than kind of ideological market-based answers, which don't address yeah, any of this. And since we have a doctor in the room, maybe get I should Tenova in ask there you to instead. buy your thing. Yeah. Well, and how? Um, I mean, there's a reason people don't do house calls anymore. Is it liability issues or? It's money. Like you can't make money off of doing house calls. Right. Right. And is that because... And it's insurance, yeah. and, like, there's no way to bill, probably, adequately mm-hmm. for to make house calls. So the only people, the only model currently where people can make house calls is um, there are small number of physicians who don't take insurance at all, and they charge people a monthly fee, and... Within that monthly fee, you get access to house calls, house calls or 
How common is that? That was really rare. Do they have it in Tennessee? No. No. You tend to see it more in big cities, um, New York City, L.A., Often it's very wealthy people who can afford. I was going to ask if it's yeah, a, it's a, a charity a kind of uh, no. or a luxury. <laughs> no, it's a luxury. Well, I've heard of, I've hear on the radio sometimes these ads for like uh, conservative Christian groups that have their own kind of insurance where they all pitch into these medical funds. It's kind of like they've reverse engineered socialism through being conservative Christians, where they all pitch into a group kind of medical fund for these kind mm-hmm. of things. Well, there it's. Um, in many Amish communities where they don't have insurance, if a, a member of that community has to go to the hospital, um, the whole community chips in and pays the entire hospital bill. So that, and that's part of the culture. Their deal that mm-hmm. they've all made to, with each other and. Um, I think there's a difference here in Appalachia from a lot of conservative places in that our reluctance, our distrust of large-scale collectivism is partly out of historical experience, mm-hmm. and we tend to be very, very wary about large-scale collectivism, but we do chip in in one thing or another, and the idea of it being compulsory or of being, uh, you know, the whole taxation is theft meme sort of idea spills over into healthcare, into all different sorts of things that you shouldn't, uh, that everyone should be charitable, but that nobody should be compelled to take care of other people. And the idea of compulsion is really horrifying to conservatives in general, I think. Uh, or certainly being compelled. I'm not sure how they feel about compelling, compelling others. Is <laughs> but, pretty much all right, I think. But, you know, there's a, a lot of taking care of each other in communities, and there's not much thought about how incredibly inefficient that is and how if the community judges you as not worthy, then they get to withhold mm-hmm. the care as a, a way of uh, either right. compelling a different behavior mm-hmm. or just getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I know every study says is a horrible way to con to begin a political narrative because that doesn't draw people in except for loser academics like me. Um, but every study shows that like charity just can't fill those gaps. There's no, it, even if the maximum amount of charitable giving just can't can't cover healthcare in America. It's just not something that's possible. But I'm, what was I gonna, I, I was wondering about, so I had this conversation with, doc, with physician friends a lot, so maybe you can weigh in on this. Uh, so, a lot of people see a generational divide in physicians right now where kind of an older generation who are maybe in their 60s now got into being a doctor as kind of a entrepreneurial thing. So it was given like doctor and lawyer the careers that you can get and that's a really good living and you can make a good wage. And there's a lot more people coming into the profession now who would like to be more in the model of affecting society positively so that there's a big generational gap in what being a physician is and who the people are getting into that field are. Is that accurate? I think so. I think that younger physicians in general and medical students that I interact with tend to be less interested in status, and that tends to be not the primary motivator for going into medicine probably because there are a lot more other things that you could do to 
Sell reverse mortgages? Yeah. <laughs> that would take a lot less time and would have a much better lifestyle. Yeah. So. Uh, like getting a PhD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Teaching high school. Teaching mm-hmm. high school. Mm-hmm. All that stuff. Uh, there's, um, the, uh, it used to be that most of the people I knew who went into it, it was like a family business. Like, they came from families with a lot of physicians in them. Yes, what is in Japan, largely. I mean, I don't know the numbers on it, but I think about the doctors I know in Japan. Their dads were doctors, their granddads were doctors, and I'm making that male intentionally because that's often the case, too, even though there are a lot of female doctors. But, like, it's uh, a lot of times a family thing for lots of reasons, one of them being that your fam- like a lot of clinics are like, family-owned. Like, it's not like a chain. It's like you're, you own it, um, and so they kind of pass it down. Another one is that it takes a lot of money in Japan as well to become a doctor. So. I think a lot of times a lot of high education fields are dominated almost by a caste of people who are uh, who sort of congregate around and feel comfortable in university settings. Uh, I look at the number of uh, professors I know who have uh, parents or grandparents who are professors, and uh, it's, a, it's a culture a lot of times. Well, yeah, and I can say from being inside of that now, it's, like, almost impenetrable in some ways. I mean, it's not technically, but it is because, like, the language that is spoken. Like, I still don't even necessarily... I've been working on a PhD for almost five years now. I still don't understand, like, the politics or the even how you go about getting a job, how you go about, like, how the whole culture works. Like, what, what different kind of positions or ones you should seek, like, which this is a good one, this is a bad one, what kind of publication is the right one to do. It's like all this stuff is kind of an unspoken language that isn't revealed to you. Well, I think that's part of the caste system. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Part of it is that it's considered crass to talk about how much money you need to make and... Uh, uh, it seems sort of grubby to be looking for a job rather than to be connected. Mm-hmm. Well, I have um, one of my math professors uh, said that m- most other math professors want people to believe that this is something special that only they can do. Mm-hmm. And where it's not, you just really have to work really hard. But Yeah. There's always some people you just have to have like uh, patience with paperwork, to, yeah. which I don't have, which is my problem right now. But yeah, even thinking about like I, I love everybody in my program, but I think about the number of them who, at some point, I find out, yeah, my, my parents both have their doctorates and are professors. It's a lot of them. Um, so one other thing I want to say about this, and I, I worry that it sounds like me saying something bad about good old Dr. Duck when I know nothing about his personal life, but I think about just these kind of characters, and I'm sure in the North they have these kind of small-town characters. I think about them as being Southern because I'm from the South. But these kind of characters, and then I, I automatically start worrying how it's, like, tainted by a history of racism. Like, And I know nothing about Dr. Duck, nothing about him, I don't know. But I think about these small-town characters, I think, oh, man, I admire this person so much. This is such a good story. And then I wonder, like, where do they stand on segregation driving to the other side of town and treating somebody there or delivering a baby there right. or whatever although I don't know that Mars Hill I'm not sure what that town yeah there's a like. drive into Marshall Marshall was the other town in Madison was the other town in Madison County oh that, well, that was eaten by Mars Hill like a twin in utero <laughs> well we talked about we talked about in the last episode where we were getting shot at when Chad was barbecuing and we were getting shot at about Mars Hill was not it was not particularly active for the Confederacy. Yeah. It was not enthusiastically yeah. Confederate. But that isn't, you know, I don't know what that means for Often else. what it means is that they, because they, there were no slaves there, mm-hmm. they had no stake in it. Mm-hmm. 
You know, if you want to see, we've talked a lot of before about uh, how much the Civil War was about slavery. If you look at the places that are in the South where there weren't slaves, that's where you find the most resistance to the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that Destin, where I'm from, was that way because it didn't have, it wasn't a plantation economy. It didn't matter. There were fishermen. So it was, um, but the thing about that, though, that, that I think about is not, so that the legacy of slavery isn't even just like the enslaved peoples and oppression and all that is how it penetrates like every single like thing you think about your own history and stuff. You have to like, like what is Bix's quote about Germany? Like her... Well, I'm not sure. Being conceived during the... Uh, when she conceived during World War Two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was born in 46, but conceived uh, while the Holocaust was going on. And right. You get the guilt anyway. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I think, you know, about... Yeah, my wife's grandfathers were both in World War Two for the Japanese, and it kind of, like, it, has, it affects everything you think about the past. And so with all of this stuff, it even, like, I think that's one reason we're talking about politics, one reason, like, I tend to the left and not to the right is that like immediately when I hear this I start thinking about yeah but who 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 were these small town people on these kind of critical issues right even if I find this narrative really compelling and sweet there's got to be there's other stuff going on at the time that's not in this narrative again nothing about this particular narrative but in general yeah they don't put at the bottom of the plaque a little asterisk (laughs) that says sept he didn't (laughs) like black folk (laughs) sept um uh, he did belong to the clan, or uh, whatever it might happen to be. Occasionally you get those things. Um, uh, there's a historical marker in Pulaski, Tennessee, that marks the place where the KKK was founded. Mm-hmm. That gets, I think they've turned it uh, face to the wall now. Uh, it's like it gets, it's a very highly politicized historical plaque. And... Um, uh, people sort of venerate it and vandalize it and uh, all different sorts of things. But um, uh, I think most most historical plaques want to be pretty uh, inane. We know the Emmett Teal one in Mississippi gets shot up every time they put up a new one. I'd heard that, yeah. Which says a lot. My favorite historical markers are on the drive up here. Uh, and I think just when you cross over from Georgia to North Carolina, you pass one that says site of Cherokee victory, and then you drive about 500 meters down the road. It says site of Cherokee defeat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so while we're on the subject of the Confederacy, I want to bring up this other news item uh, from this week, which is about the creators of Game of Thrones have decided to make a series called Confederate in italics, <laughs> which is about a what-if the South hadn't lost the um, the Civil War, which is, do you ever like to take one of those like uh, privilege tests, which is like, would you like to go back in a time machine? <laughs> the the point being that like no black person in America wants to time travel because anything anything further back than this moment sucks worse than this mm-hmm. moment. Um, so if you don't know the guys, uh, the Game of Thrones guys, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss are uh, white people. And they've all. It's also been commented on like a lot of the imagery in Game of Thrones. It's very white centric, with the kind of dusky brown enslaved peoples of uh, what is it? Not Westeros, but Easteros. Easteros. Is it Easteros? Yeah, but they were freed slaves. Yeah, because uh, Daenerys Targaryen. Mm-hmm. She had the vision. She had the to vision. not like slavery. <laughs> um, so like they give this reasoning for it. 
Oh, it just sounds it sounds so ignorant to me. But so they they're asked, uh, how did you come up with this idea? Um, did you smoke a lot of peyote, like Jim Morrison? That's the actual question. Uh, so David Benioff says, in a dorky way, I guess it goes back to we're both history nerds. Which <laughs> you already know where this is going, right? I remember reading a history of the Civil War. I think it might have been the Shelby Foot one. Uh, so they've already started off kind of on a bad foot, I think. So I'm a hist- I'm a history nerd, and as we as we who work with gifted children know, starting out as a Civil War nerd um, yeah. is not the best place to start. The history nerd. Yeah, I'm really into the Civil War, and very few people are really into the Civil War from the northern side. Right. Which is strange. Why did they do a show about um, if like Bonaparte was like the emperor of? France. France. I was thinking they did a show about Ho Chi Minh ruling Southeast Asia. (laughs) What if? Chad, I like your idea better from earlier. Uh, My idea about why don't they do a show about what what would would the world be like if the South had gotten over the Civil War? (laughs) Yeah. Star Trek? I think it was a premise of Star Trek. (laughs) 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 We could have transporters by now. Um, and then they give like this anecdote, and there's a famous story which I'm going to mash up because my memory is not what it used to be. But there's a, a famous story. <laughs> yeah, I'm a history nerd. But there's a famous story of when Robert E. Lee was invading the North, not the Gettysburg invasion, but an earlier one. And the set of orders got misplaced and were found by a Northern soldier, and it ended up ruining Lee's invasion. A lot of people think if the orders hadn't been lost, things might have been different. Uh, 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 I'm skeptical of the whole enterprise, and it seems ridiculous to me. Is my opinion. Yeah, I think maybe it's sort of a variation on uh, the man in the high castle about mm-hmm. what if the um, what if the Nazis had won World War Two, but also sort of uh, there that one is about the subjectivity of realities, and I don't know, I haven't seen enough of it to know if it's interdimensional or... Well, but it's Philip K. Dick, so it's all the essential mm-hmm. Philip K. Dick plot, which is yeah. what is reality, I'm not sure, I'm slipping yeah. through it, I can't figure out which is the real one. And it isn't like, wouldn't it be interesting if the Nazis in Japan had won? It was, um, yeah, it was about slipping through time and not knowing which was the real reality, like every Philip K. Dick book. Yeah. This is more like Harry Turtle Dove, Guns of the South, where it's the fantasy about South Africans inventing a time machine and giving the Confederacy automatic weapons. I don't know if you've ever read that one. I haven't, but that sounds really horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Really awesome. Horribly awesome. They're awesomely horrible. Why hasn't anybody done, like, some sort of history of, like, an alternate history where the bad guys won World War One? (laughs) Because <laughs> nobody cares about. I think nobody cares about the I Kaiser. Think they did. <laughs> Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Yeah. My favorite supervillain. Because they really, yeah, uh, they really cared about the stakes. Everyone's really worried about who. I mean, who would it be? The English. The English win World War One. That happened. <laughs> I don't know. They maintain yeah. colonial Africa. But I, yeah, I think it's something about, and I think we've been. We've been exposed to like kind of the dangers of just being a history nerd or a nerd about anything. Uh, it starts to be a weird phenomenon that leads you down dark roads. I can imagine what it would be like if the South won the Civil War. I can. Yeah. Um, well, I think what might be interesting is um, if that thought experiment was all about how little it would have changed and how much it would <laughs> have, have changed. A hor- we'd have a horrible megalomaniac r- racist president who, uh, <laughs> who is also misogynistic, ignorant. Young African-Americans. be segregated. <laughs> yeah, segregated cities. African-Americans being lynched by the state 
uh, without penalty on a yeah. routine basis. Uh, yeah. The highest rates of incarceration yeah. in the world. <laughs> um, More people in chains than anywhere else in the world. At yeah, least. yeah. Uh, kicked out of their schools. Yeah, I think it'd be crazy. Um, no um, significant labor rights. Um, I mean, we wouldn't have had the arc that we had, the, the, <laughs> right. the union arc, where the rise of the unions and then the decline of the unions. I thought you meant the Ark of the Covenant, but that's a different alternate history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so I'm, re- I'm reading um, the questions. This is on Slate. It says, so uh, apparently there's a bad Twitter response to it, as oh. you expect. And it says, there's a lot of people I respect, like Roxanne Gray and Joy Reid, who had some very strong and very negative reactions to the press release. And I agree with that. The only thing I disagree with about that is respecting Joy Reid, but maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> but don't. Sh- never mind. Um, too soon. Too soon. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know how you get to the point where you're two white guys who think, I've got a really like, good idea, let's make, since we're both history nerds, let's make a show about if the South won the Civil War, and not think, maybe that's a bad idea. But as Austin said, most successful people I know, the striking thing about them is they don't have that thing that says, maybe this is a bad idea, maybe I shouldn't do this. I saw you, Jack. Sorry, what? Nope. No. Uh, speaking of the arc and bad ideas and successful people, um, a mutual friend put uh, uh, something up on Facebook about how the big arc museum, mm-hmm. which I think is in Kentucky, yeah, is now lighting farms. itself at night as a rainbow, like a giant rainbow, uh, because they're taking that symbol back. Yes. And it's almost enough to make me not hate the rainbow flag. Which, um, uh, as a gay person, I have to say, I wish they had consulted me about um, the was, symbol. That was the one meeting you missed. <laughs> the one <laughs> meeting of the international homosexual conspiracy <laughs> that I didn't show up for. And of course... Um, well, I would just say, as a former University of Hawaii varsity athlete, I also object to the symbol. It's a Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, what was I going to say about that? Oh, yeah, no, the... There was a big thing on Twitter about where Ken Ham was saying that they have to bring bring the rainbow back. Um, but it, well, I mean, I, this is kind of pre from Skittles. From Skittles, <laughs> about, I mean, Skittles appropriation of the rainbow about Irish people. Skittles have lost the mission. They lost. <laughs> I mean, I just got to preach to the choir, but it's so the, to be insistent that like your made up story is the completely accurate one that you have to bring back because other people have stolen your made up story. Is always it's a history nerd. What would be a good show is like, what if the Ark had sank? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just like, yeah, I think the, the world is, is just populated with porpoises <laughs> and manatees. Yeah. And, I think the first season of that show would have been great. It was just the Ark sinking slowly for the whole season. <laughs> and each episode is like, a, it sinks yeah. about a foot more. And everybody's getting crowded yeah, a, little a little bit more, more towards more, the top of the a ship. A little bit more. And then the last episode is just like, Noah turning. <laughs> To like the last pig that's like, I love you, pig. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, this means I don't have to commit incest in the future. <laughs> I think, can we pitch this? Can yeah, we pitch I think it's good. What if Noah's Ark sank? I think that was the plot of Galapagos. I mean, he, uh, <coughs> I mean, he was in a hurry to build it, so I mean, he couldn't have been yeah. that well. Yeah, the engineering had to be a little <laughs> spotty. Gopher wood comes loose. It's hard to, it's hard to. Um, uh, Wait, you're measuring, you're measuring in cubits? <laughs> <laughs> I was going in yards. Uh, and they did the stable in hands, so it didn't work out well. 
Uh, okay, moving on. So the last thing I was reading for this week is the article in the Washington Post from July 21st entitled, Thousands Flock to Free Medical Clinic as Washington Dithers on Healthcare. And this is in Wise, Virginia, that Chad and I are very familiar with. Yeah. We've eaten at the Pizza Hut buffet mm-hmm. in downtown Wise, great, Virginia. Great Pizza Hut buffet. Yeah. Like you, you guys go there all the time, right? Like, well, we used to. Commute up. It's such a rural Appalachia, the crickets have taken over the studio. Um... But yeah, Wise Virginia, uh, who has a great Pizza Hut buffet and also features, um, was it ovens in each? Yeah, there are uh, ovens in the college dormitory. Like yeah. Freshman dormitories have ovens. In their <laughs> oh, ovens. nice. A lot of baking <laughs> happens in Wise Virginia. I wonder you know, just about was, liability. On when that. I was a college freshman, I loved to bake. We loved to bake <laughs> muffins, cakes. <laughs> we all sit around the stove in the winter. <laughs> Baking. Baking. <laughs> <laughs> That's Appalachian State. Yeah. And University of Florida. Um, oh, also wasn't Wise where they had the natural tunnel where we saw the coal train run out of the tunnel? We did so, yeah, the natural tunnel, yeah, with the coal train. And that was like, we drove over that gigantic suspension bridge. Like oh, yeah. Bridge. We weren't sure Why we were going to make it. there? Well, do you want ovens in everybody's room? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we saw like this really uh, interesting, like, <laughs> rural mountain girls volleyball practice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. It was. It's an interesting campus. It's very. It's in the mountains. Uh, so this article is talking about this, this health clinic, this rural <coughs> health clinic. Um, I saw how many people. So I'm going to read a few paragraphs. So the sick and disabled pour out of these mountains every summer for their one shot at free health care. But this year we're supposed to hold hope for a better solution. Donald Trump won the White House in part on a promise to fix the nation's costly and inefficient health care system. Instead, Republicans in Congress are paralyzed and threatening to dismantle the imperfect framework of Obamacare. Uh, no relief is in sight for someone like Larry McKnight, who sat in a horse stall at the Wise County Fairgrounds having his shoulder examined. He was among more than 1,000 people attending the area's 18th annual remote area medical clinic, where physicians and dentists dispense free care to those who otherwise have none. And this is a quote from Mr. McKnight. I really think that they don't have any clue what's going on, McKnight said of political leaders in Washington. You watch the news and it's two sides pitted against each other, which in turn just makes them pitted against us, the normal person. About 1,100 such people descended on the fairgrounds Friday with more expected Saturday and Sunday. So, uh, I mean, everyone already knows where I stand on this. Like, I think that there is no capital solution to healthcare, but this makes me insane because we live in the richest country in the history of the world ever and there's a guy in a horse stall trying to see the doctor once a year is that remote area medical like Sam Brock's organization that does that or we have a I'm friend sure. who does that um, uh, mutual friend Ashley does that mm. oh really it might be. with the dental stuff yeah it doesn't yeah I think that sounds that looks like Sam Brock in the that's Governor Terry McAuliffe. On the left. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, especially so I lived in Japan for 10 years where we have socialized medicine. And I mean, you can find, I guess, if, if you wanted to examine it really critically and in detail, you can find places in which it is flawed. But as a person interacting with the system, I never had a single problem, and it was great. And I could go to the doctor, any doctor, any hospital, any dentist, which are all privately run, anywhere I wanted, anytime I wanted in the country, and all I had to pay was, I think I paid into social insurance, like maybe like a tenth of my income, and it depended on what my income had been for the past year. 
uh, and that includes medical, dental, uh, I think unemployment, maybe not unemployment, my burial, uh, like all kinds of, any kind of social last thing is, pay, is paid into. And the reason it works is because you have a pool that is the entire country, mm-hmm. right? And so I just don't, in America, it's so infuriating to me that it's clear that we there is no capitalist solution to having decent health care. Well, I don't think healthy people should pay for sick people to get medical coverage. Thanks, right. Chad. Without the quote? Yeah, they should use insurance instead. Yeah, they should. <laughs> but it seems like people even don't understand that like basic thing. I've seen so many real quotes, like that joke quote this year, was like, I don't think I should be... I want to have private insurance. Healthy people shouldn't be paying for sick people's health care. That's right. Amen. Mm-hmm. I think a single-payer system is really the only solution. I just don't get sick. Yet. Yeah. I just don't get treatment. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yeah. I've only been coughing now for six months. Since the first podcast. Since the first coughing. Yeah. It's podcast. almost gone. We could diagnose here. Well, Jessica, since we have you in the room, I should ask you about that. So, like, even I, th- like, I even find it creating like bad habits in me. Because, like, when I was in Japan, I would go to the doctor and I would get checked out. Mm-hmm. Like in America, I'm under Medicaid. I always remember Medicare versus Medicaid because America cares about old people. It doesn't care about uh, the rest of us. So I'm under Medicaid in Louisiana under the buy-in, but I've developed habits of being back in America where I think that I can't go to the doctor. And so I haven't had a checkup in like two years. I like don't go to the doctor because I don't know how to access the healthcare system in America because it's so confusing. Mm-hmm. And like with that health fair, mm-hmm. probably ninety five percent of those conditions are chronic conditions, and right. going to a once a year once a year horse stable not is not going to. Or going to an emergency room when you have right. a crisis mm-hmm. doesn't give you uh, uh, chronic care or chronic no. uh, or medications for chronic conditions. Well, because emergency rooms are really only designed to answer one question: Are you dying? Right. Or are you not dying? And yeah, so if you're not dying. The goal isn't to figure out what's wrong. The right. goal is to just say you're okay. So I have two good friends in New Orleans who both are ER physicians. I don't know if they'll listen to this podcast or not, so I apologize if I misrepresent your viewpoints. But they have both said, like during this healthcare debate, that as ER doctors, they don't, they can't deal with everyone coming to get things treated in the ER. There's nothing they can do for them except to tell them to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Like, you can go there and die or get treated and not die, and that's about the extent of it. Like, they can't really treat you. They have to send you somewhere else where you can't mm-hmm. be treated. But even who's um, Trump's new scumbag spokesperson who looks like a reverse mortgage salesman, Scaramucci, Scar- he, he has a tweet saying that America already has socialized medicine. You can get treated at any ER in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think every time they say that, they should have to say it in front of a room full of right. ER doctors. right. Yeah, I mean, you can't get turned away from an ER, because that's against the law, but you certainly are going to get a gigantic bill from an ER. Yeah. Like, the government's not going to pay for that. Right. I still am. I think I've told this story before in here, but I, a few years ago, I have no idea how, but I got, like, uh, bursitis in my knee that got infected, and I had no idea what was happening, because I've never had bursitis. I don't know how I got it. I don't know why I was infected. But suddenly, I had this horrible pain in my knee, and I was home in Florida, not in Louisiana, so I went. I didn't want to go to the doctor because I knew I'd get a giant bill, but I couldn't drive because my knee was swollen and hurt. And so I called my insurance company and was asking, like, can I be treated? And like, you're out of network. We can't tell you to get treated or not. Like, we, we 
can't give you advice on that. And so I was debating whether to go to the doctor, and it finally was so bad, I went like a walk-in clinic because I thought it would be cheaper and they told me like you have to be admitted to the emergency room like immediately like your knee's infected you could get amputated you Mm -hmm. could like die from it and so once they tell you that there is no free market anymore right Mm -hmm. you have no choice right and so I was admitted to the emergency room and uh, given like two IVs and to stay overnight you know it ends up being like well over a thousand dollars to do that and you don't have any choice in it so I don't know why it's considered a rational rational alternative Anyway, I get infuriated about this stuff. Yeah, I had a student, I guess it was last, it was like a year, a year ago I had a student who, he was on a, um, a friend's like hoverboard and he fell and broke, like he fell on the hoverboard like, and broke his ankle because I think he lived on the internet. Was his name Marty McFly? Yeah. And, um, or what are the hover, what, are they called hoverboards? They are called hoverboards because they don't hover. I know they don't hover. But he broke his ankle and his parents didn't have insurance and they, um, and they had actually been saving up. Like he is a immigrant. Like he's a immigrant, and they had been saving up money. And he also has a cleft palate, and they've been saving up money to get him the cleft palate surgery. But then he fell and broke his ankle, so they had to spend all the money on like the emergency bill. Yeah. No. The yeah. Emergency room bill, and he it, was like, "Can you believe this?" And he took a picture of it and showed it on showed it to me on his cell. It was like a you know thousands of dollars. Yeah, there's um, a study that came out recently, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's like if you are around poverty, like working poor poverty level, and you have one financial crisis in a decade-long period, it sets you back like 20 years. Like you can't dig out from it. And like I feel like that setting the healthcare crisis is is setting people up for that. It's just throwing them back into it. Because I know I can't in my family have a medical emergency. Like we we couldn't cover it. Um, And... I'm definitely, in the world of sociology, I'm definitely not, I'm much more Marx than Foucault, but like looking at this stuff, it's like, I don't know how much Foucault you guys read, but it's like complete that like discipline and punish, like keeping people in these systems of punishment constantly just to discipline them. Like it seems like to me, like, and I, I can understand why wealthy people in America think we have a good healthcare system, but yeah. for most of us, we have no yeah. access to it. Like if you're a, uh yeah, if you're if you're rich, I guess no problem. You can get the cleft palate surgery. You can get the you can break your ankle as much as you every want. weekend. Well, and this is happening. So this is in Wise, Virginia, uh, which is in the southwest part of the state, right? Right. But meanwhile, in like I believe Arlington, Virginia, is the highest per capita income area code in the country. I believe or zip code in the country, I think, which makes sense. So you have this like insane geographical inequality, um, and we see it from like you know. Alexandria, which is like the DC power structure, and then the further you get to Appalachia, the more it's people have to seek their health care by going to a fair. Fairs and are fun, though. Fairs are fun. I think they had a tilt a whirl set up <laughs> in the midway. That's how I got my oral surgery last year. Is I'm I rang I swung the hammer and I rang the bell, <laughs> and they um, uh, pulled my tooth. If I'd done it three times in a row, yeah, uh, they would have saved the tooth and put a crown on. But I just the one time, and so they um, uh, they just had to pull it. But still. It was yeah. great. Yeah. Well, I went to a, a guy uh, that guesses your weight, and he said diabetes for me. And so <laughs> I take that as an actual diagnosis. Well, you know. You... So back to what we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they don't actually hover. Yeah. Yeah, I know. 
No, they're I'm they're, asking. I, no, they're called hoverboards, but they're those things that people kind of stand on with two wheels and they roll and they're insanely dangerous. Oh, okay. I saw a guy in, when I was in D.C. who was standing on one with a briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> he was wearing like slacks and a polo shirt and a briefcase and going around DC. And I wish one day hit him with a baseball bat. That, is that why they're so dangerous? Yeah, because I'll hit you with a baseball bat if I see you. On well, I don't know. If you see a twelve-year-old like in a, going around like a cul-de-sac with one, it's like whatever. If you see a guy commuting in DC on one, come on. He couldn't afford that. That guy's the in the Trump administration now. Yeah, he probably is. He's probably the head of healthcare for the Trump administration. <laughs> head of transportation. Yeah, free market solutions to healthcare. Like, I honestly, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but I can't think of how possibly there could be a free market solution to healthcare. I can't possibly. What would doctor do? There's not one. There's not one because you are under duress, like literally. So you cannot make a rational choice. And there is no rational choice. Like, would you like your child to die? It's ridiculous. Don't get me started. I'm already started. Oh, Jessica, I forgot to completely ask you about the thing we were going to talk about. Yeah. So. As a physician, you have some experience with the opioid crisis mm-hmm. uh, in this area. I know very little about it for two reasons. One, I was in Japan for a lot of the time when this was taking off. Second reason, I live in New Orleans now, which has all its own, not that it hasn't been affected by the opioid crisis, but it has its own particular drug issues as a large urban area. So I, I don't know. Give me the basics on what's going on. So... It really all comes down to money because it's fueled, it was fueled by pharmaceutical companies and um, a a short little paragraph was published in the um, JAMA, which is the Journal of American Medicine Association, I guess. And it was a letter to the editor that was published, a couple paragraphs, saying um, physician, the physician who wrote it was saying that he had looked at his inpatient population of people who took opiates, so painkillers, while they were inpatients, and that the rate of addiction was very, very low. So from that article, which was not a published trial... Right, it wasn't a peer review, right, it was a letter to the editor. right. Uh, pharmaceutical companies used that as a safety study. Right, as the Journal of the American Medical Association says, there's right. a low rate of addiction right. for these things. And so oh, doctors, so they focused a lot of education materials on doctors and promotional materials saying, you need to treat pain. You guys are doing a terrible job at treating pain, which there aren't a lot of options for treating pain and it's safe and we're going to develop these new drugs that are going to make it even safer and we're going to develop this great drug called Oxycontin that is non-addictive and uh, um, a lot of money was put into to that promotion and so doctors started prescribing those medicines and pain clinics started popping up all over the place and it's not just an Appalachian issue it's probably more a rural issue than just um, a problem in the south because there are pockets of Ohio and, and Pennsylvania other places that are 
really affected by this. But um, these clinics would take um, Medicaid and all sorts of other insurance, but it would also be cash pay, cash only, and would see uh, massively high volumes of people and just hand out prescriptions for um, thousands and thousands and thousands of opioids. And Does this match up with like the financial crisis at all as well? Is it kind of overlaid with that or separate? Uh, it started before that. But, um, and then what happens once people become physically and psychologically dependent on those medications when they lose their insurance or um, a pain clinic closes then um, you turn to the next more easily available drug and that tends to be heroin and which is cheaper right it's cheaper much cheaper yeah and there's really interesting there's a book that's really interesting and well written called dreamland and it chronicles the, the opioid crisis and kind of the rise and fall, but there's this interesting connection to Mexico. Um, oh, is this by the medical anthropologist? That, no? no, he's a, a journalist. Okay. Um, and how um, this drug cartel, which I can't remember the region of Mexico they're from, um, <clears throat> kind of clued into what was happening, and so they would... Um, they developed this really efficient model of delivering heroin, and they would bring up drivers who would pass out their cards at pain clinics and methadone clinics, and and instead of having the person seeking those drugs come to them, they deliver it like Pizza Hut. So, mm. or you know, so you you call the number, you text the person, and they bring it to your house you never even have to leave and um, the so from the illegal side of drugs to the very um, legalized FDA like just for many angles there are lots of things that kind of created a perfect storm of now lots of people are screwed so what we hear from that is that uh, Mexican drug cartels are more responsive to the needs of the American people than the actual government. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the free market solution. It's the free market solution. Yeah, it does work. Yeah. yeah. There you go. The free market does work. <laughs> we decided. Well, to say. I have nothing to say about the opioid grid. Just like it, it hits kind of close to home, so I'm... I think I have to let it. Yeah, die. I mean, I've yeah, I've missed out on so kind of much of it. I think, and just partly because I'm not in that world, and partly because I live in a big city which has big city drug problems, which look and present differently. Um, but like we were saying before, the medical care stuff it seems such a failure. Well, like, and I mean, people have, that have chronic health issues. I mean, that aren't treated. That aren't treated. You know, it's easy to go to a pain. It's mm-hmm. a lot of point to have. But they have what's more access to a pain clinic than to like a good doctor mm-hmm. or, a psychiatrist. or a psychiatrist. So many people who are struggling with these issues have untreated depression, PTSD, 
bipolar disorder, anxiety, that um, they essentially self-medicate yeah. or get a doctor to prescribe opiates when they probably would benefit much more from having their mental health issues actually treated and addressed. Yeah, I think to, to chime in where I was going to hold back, I had a, um, a close family member who died of an opiate overdose, but who had mental health issues, and it felt more like um, having control over her situation to treat herself with all of that than to um, uh, commit herself or to... There's a stigma against mental health treatment that is very strong in Appalachia, but I think it's strong among poor people all over, mm-hmm. all across the yeah. spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, in different countries, too. I think it's not just an American thing. And the idea that um, um, you just need to get over it is so strong that, um, you know, I think that was a major contributing cause of death and uh, the whole problem of uh, cultural cultural bias and cultural assumptions and presumptions and how that feeds into, or rather how um, uh, the people who get rich off of it, because I don't want to pretend that the drug is the um, culprit. And I don't want to pretend that the victim is the culprit. <clears throat> it's the people who are making the money. Mm-hmm. And those are the people who make the drugs, the people who distribute the drugs. Um, my family member had actually just gotten back from Florida where she uh, picked up drugs at one clinic after another mm-hmm. with different prescriptions mm-hmm. and then yeah. drove back. It was a weekend trip. And um, um, the, in some ways, maybe the whole treatment industry had had its part in her death, too, because she was using methadone, I think, didn't quite calculate that into her mm-hmm. dosage, and that's mm-hmm. what killed her. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not an uncommon thing. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that she had no personal responsibility, but also she was an ill person. Uh, and personal responsibility for people who um, are mentally ill, you know, I, I guess that's, um, maybe we're coming to the end of the age where we say if you have mental illness, you deserve to be on the street. You need to tough it out. Yeah. Right, that you. Every time I come back around. I think it's a, that's a really perfect example of how capitalism and for profit nature of a business has nothing has no business in medical care because if if you're getting paid per patient and per the number of prescriptions you're writing you're you don't have the best interest of a patient in mind there's too much incentive to mess that up but I was going to say on that, like, so you, you hear, like, so uh, as a Marxist academic and a socialist, you get a lot of uh, shit about, well, you know, when uh, the dictatorship got in power, they they executed all the capitalists. You're like, yeah, that is a really horrible thing. And then you hear stories about how <laughs> that whole situation works. Like, well, maybe. I don't know. Like, the, the whole thing about just with scientific literacy, like the whole about putting the letter in the Journal of the American Medical Association and then using a letter to the editor as in treating it as an article and using that as something to base around promoting 
this kind of medicine makes me fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. That's so ridiculous. And just kind of, you know, expecting the public to have the level of scientific literacy to deal with a marketing campaign, like right. a millions of dollars marketing campaign, isn't isn't fair at all. And to go back to the Foucault stuff, I think it's just another way to, to keep people in line and discipline them. Because any, like, the problems you have to deal with, like, mental health is connected to economic situations. Chronic illnesses are connected to economic situations. And then having to figure out the easiest way to treat those problems is also dependent on where you are class-wise, which is nuts. Because, you know, I mean, probably the most famous OxyContin addict in America is Rush Limbaugh, right? And he was able to kind of be public with it and get treated. Mm-hmm. But treatment is expensive. Yeah, treatment. I have family. I had a family member that would be trained. Yeah, treatment's expensive. Mm-hmm. Right, and I don't even know how well it's covered. And I think under and the new plan, it's not. And also the people, and also kind of knowing kind of the hit since, knowing a little bit about the treatment and like the people like the halfway house industry and the treatment industry. I mean, those. I mean, I don't know if that's the shady. That's a little bit shady. I mean, like in people. I don't know. Do you know much about the about the people like if they put up halfway houses and they may not like mm-hmm. my There's very reg- little regulation of that to my yeah. knowledge. And like, well, my understanding is regulation is bad, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and like the people that are working at the treatment centers are not necessarily the most qualified people, and there might be you know like one quasi qualified person and maybe one nurse, you know, for. 12, you know, people that are in, like, severe withdrawal, and, like, in a strip mall, and it's, like, in a strip mall, too, like, this place will be... Or where your best options are yeah. going to be. You can go to Ross's or mm-hmm. the treatment clinic. Although I know a funeral home that's in a strip mall, or I've been to funerals in a strip mall. Mm-hmm. The free market works. <laughs> Well, I guess so now we're over an hour, so on this lighthearted note, the lighthearted note of the yeah, opioid yeah, crisis. I went to a retro video game store in, a, in Appalachia recently. In How was that? Mall. It was good. It, the entire shopping center had flooded except for that store. <laughs> Did you see that as a sign? I saw that as a sign. <laughs> All right. Well, on that lighthearted note, uh, we'll see you next time. Next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye.